room in my heart for thee. On the third, the foxes found rest and the birds their nest in the shade of the forest tree. But thy couch was the sod, O thou Son of God, in the deserts of Galilee. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. On the last, when the heavens shall ring and the angels sing at thy coming to Call me home, saying, Yet there is room, there is room at my side for thee. And my heart shall rejoice, Lord Jesus, there is room in my heart for thee. Amen. Let's be seated. <clears throat> Join me, if you would, back in Ephesians chapter 6. Of course, there are many passages of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that warn about what the so-called last days are going to look like. Now, last days is a rather broad term, uh, technically started uh, when the Lord was crucified. But uh, we definitely see, if you've read 2 Timothy 3 anytime recently, you can list or read a list of those characteristics that are going to be increasingly manifested uh, before the Lord's second coming. And one of those that always catches my attention is the phrase, disobedient to parents. In other words, uh, Paul prophesied that in the end times, rebellion would become the norm. The building block for widespread rebellion against authority, they've been systematically laid for some time. When God's absolutes, even His existence, is questioned, it will be eventually discarded. Along with discarding God's absolutes comes a rejection of the innate evil nature of humanity, even children. And once that goes out the window, sound reasoning gets turned on its head. Uh, today, children are to be bribed and consulted, not led and commanded. Temper tantrums are to be celebrated as a legitimate form of self-expression uh, rather than treated as a demonstration of a depraved nature that they really are. Uh, teenagers have become the leaders of society's fashion and culture, not the older generations. I was reading an article recently in The Guardian that really is representative of a lot of the philosophy that's out there. And the title of it was this, since when did obedience become the epitome of good parenting? And uh, the author's basic premise is, who says that obedient children are a good thing? A subtitle is, we all want impeccably behaved children, right? Well, maybe not, says the author. I'll read you some of the choice nuggets from the article. A compliant child becomes a particular concern when they reach adolescence. If they take orders from other people, that may include people we may not approve of. 
To put it the other way around, kids who are subject to peer pressure at its worst are kids whose parents taught them to do what they're told. So this author is saying that children who are taught to obey are actually in great danger of becoming mindless robots who are ruled by their peers. So we want to teach them to not listen to anybody uh, so that they won't listen to the wrong people. How about this one? So much of what we see as disobedience in children is actually just natural, curious, exploring, learning behavior. Now, there's some truth to that one, but how about this? Or they're just reacting, and the only way they know how to a situation over which they have no control. Uh, so when Junior goes Meshuganut, the grocery store, uh, we're not to train him not to do that. We're to embrace it and have compassion because, after all, he's only acting that way because he doesn't have control over the situation. Well, I have news for Junior and everybody else living on this planet. There's lots of situations you and I don't have control of, and we better learn that fast. How about this one? One of the comments I get a lot at the end of my columns for the family section of The Guardian is something along the lines of, They'll turn into a monster if you don't put your foot down and show them who's boss. That's not based on empirical evidence. It's a very dark view of human nature. In other words, the mindset that if you don't train children, they're going to become monsters. Well, that's a very dark view of human nature. You know, the same God who came to this earth to be slaughtered for our sins is full of compassion, long-suffering, and mercy. The same God who made us and loves us with an eternal love has also painted a very dark picture of human nature. It's hard to look at that little child, particularly when they're first born, and say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Or, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Those of you that are parents know you didn't have to teach them to lie and cheat and steal. They learned that just fine by their own nature. Now, of course, that problem has not been helped by modern psychology, by television. I'm not going to go on a rampage about that, but let me just say this. If you want to distort your child's mindset... If you want them to imbibe in an anti-God philosophy that will utterly conform this into the world, into the world faster than almost anything, just plop them down in front of the television consistently. It is guaranteed to turn their worldview against God from an early age. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Music over the past six decades has not helped this problem either. I was sitting in Perkins recently, and those of you that go there sometimes know they like to play the so-called oldies. And I was sitting there eating, and I was, I was listening to the lyrics from the coasters from 1958. Take out the papers and the trash, or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't scrub that kitchen floor... You ain't going to rock and roll no more. Yakety yak. Don't talk back. Now, that's all innocent, right? Clean cut, men in ties, 1950s. Doesn't get more wholesome than that. Now, I realize by today's standard, that's really benign. But think about the premise. 
My fuddy-duddy parents, all they do is give me orders, and I'm sick and tired of it. I want to go hang out with them hoodlum friends. And of course, it's basically making a mockery out of parental oversight. May I remind you that there's no such thing as a pure and innocent rebellion. Such a thing does not exist. Of course, that mindset has devolved into much more blatant things today. Now, I'm not going to bury you with statistics. We could certainly dig them up. But it's no wonder today that youth, uh, promiscuity, drug abuse, alcoholism, and suicide are at levels that even shock the secular world. No society can survive a reversal of God's authority structure forever. History has proven that over and over. It's like if you take a building and you turn it upside down and put the foundation on top of the roof, eventually the thing's going to collapse under its own ignorant weight. Now we've been passing through the practical section of Ephesians, the how-to section if you want to call it that. And of course the Holy Spirit has something to say to each member of the family unit. Again, this is downstream from verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. This is talking about what things should look like when people in a family are subject to the Holy Spirit of God. Salvation is a prerequisite, or at least in child training, these things should be pointing towards salvation. Wives wear a lot of hats. It amazes me how many hats they wear. But their primary responsibility in marriage with respect to their husband is to submit, to voluntarily place themselves under his authority for the Lord's sake. Husbands also wear a lot of hats. Our main responsibility towards our wife in marriage is to love her as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. It's a self-sacrificing, active choice on a daily basis. And again, I, I see it in my mind, this mental picture. Wives submit, and you would think the direction to husbands would be on a collision course with that. Submit, make her submit, but it's submit, love. And it reciprocates. That's how it's supposed to operate if everybody is in subjection to the will of God. Now for children, you young people that are here, there's at least one statement that stands like an armed guard between you and disaster. And it ought to speak in your ears louder than all the voices of the world clamoring for your attention. And here comes the simple, forceful, loving, brilliant command of an all-knowing God. Here's what it says, children, Obey your parents in the Lord. When it comes to a word to summarize your primary responsibility to your parents, it is the word obey. I certainly can't calculate, but I do wonder how much heartache, how much tragedy, how much premature death, how much financial calamity, how much drug addiction, how many nightmare marriage situations in world history could have been avoided if those involved had listened to three words. Obey your parents. Not the coasters. 
First, I just want to say a word to parents. I hope this is quick because you're really not the main subject here, but I feel compelled to say a few things. First of all, I really can't express enough the awesome stewardship that we have been given as parents. Every child entrusted to you by God is a temporary stewardship. They're on loan to you. But unlike other temporary stewardships, they're a temporary stewardship with truly eternal consequences. You know, it's like you're holding a bow and the string is pulled. And you have a very small amount of time to aim this little arrow. And when you let it go, it's going to fly forever. It is sobering indeed that the effect of our parenting will still be felt 10,000 years from now. So for starters, I'm in the trenches with you, and I definitely include myself. I will remind all of us, we don't have time to delay getting our act together in known areas, and that all hell is going to fight you on your priorities. Even good things will force their way in to keep you away from your greatest stewardships. Now, when it comes to child training, uh, your primary duty in day-to-day -day existence is to teach them to obey for the Lord's sake. You are after the breaking and submitting of the will, not the spirit. Not to crush them to where they don't want to try or do anything. That's not right. But the submitting of the will, you are going after the heart attitude. Child training is essentially heart training. It's opening them up to see what's inside to deal with it before God. On one hand, discipline is most effective and long-lasting in an atmosphere of love, encouragement, acceptance, recognizing the good, patience, long-suffering, genuine love, and nurture. But on the other hand, if you're a parent, you must bear the rod of correction if you truly love the Lord and truly love your child. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child. It's wrapped into his very nature by birth. It's in the warp and the woof of his being. And he says, But the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Somebody says, I love little Dexter too much to spank him. That's baloney. You love yourself too much, and you love God too little to obey Him. That's really what's going on here. The Proverbs 13.24, He that spareth his rod hateth his son. But he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes, or diligently and consistently. Remember what love is? It's not, oh, I feel so fuzzy. I love spanking my child. I'd rather do that than eat donuts. Love is a self-sacrificing action that does what's eternally best for others. And parents, what's eternally best for a disobedient child is loving, patient, consistent discipline. And if you really love God and love your child, you will do what He says. Now when it comes to day-to-day -to -day training... 
You are always training them. In other words, a failure to train in a given situation is actively teaching them to disobey. Many times when parents get angry, they tell a child something, doesn't do it, they tell him again, he doesn't do it, they tell him louder, he doesn't do it, then they yell and he doesn't do it, and then they come charging in there like a bull to gorilla, and then he does it. Really what's happening is they're being too lazy to properly train him before the explosion. Well, I'm going to start counting, Junior. What are they really being taught? I don't have to obey right away, but only when their face gets red. And see, the reason they're obeying is so they don't get an angry thrashing. Not because the Lord says so. Your own obedience and subjection to God Himself will loudly speak in their little ears. Our day-to-day growth, our day-to-day dealing with sin and avoiding hypocrisy is going to teach them volumes of theology without them even realizing it until they're older. Dad's burying sin and refusing to deal with it is one of the most damaging things they can possibly do. The primary reason you teach them to obey in the Lord is because you are preparing them for how they will obey God. And listen, proper child training produces the awareness and the fear of God and prepares them for the gospel message. Not a carnal, self-centered sort of anger, but patient, consistent correction, both in word and action, helps to break up the fallow ground, prepare the soil so they take the free gift of salvation. Proverbs 23.14 says an amazing thing. Thou shalt beat him with the rod. Now, in our day, we have to qualify that. It's not talking about abuse. No. No. It's not talking about a temper tantrum by a parent with a stick. But the idea is, you deliver an effective enough punishment that it actually produces and does something. Thou shalt beat him with the rod, and shalt deliver his soul from hell. A child discipline goes a long way towards teaching children God's righteousness, His holiness, His justice, and then eventually pointing towards His forgiveness, which only comes through the blood of Christ. Some of you may find it helpful, especially with young children, to set up proactive training sessions. Now here's what I mean. God does this to us. Does the Lord merely wait for something to go wrong before He teaches us? You see Him walk with the disciples. He was proactively teaching all the time. Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as as wheat. What was that? That was proactive training for the future. We found it helpful with young children over the years that don't merely wait for discipline to be needed, but set up sessions where you actively teach them to obey. We call it obedience practice. In fact, for a while, we'd use those little chocolate-covered sunflower seeds because they were sweet and yummy, but they're tiny, and so we don't rot their teeth out of their head. Some of you may find that helpful. All right, now verse 1, though, and what we're actually going to do is kind of work through the verse backwards. Uh, First of all, why, why should children obey? 
In our society, by the way, this is posed as a legitimate question. The article I mentioned is case in point. Who says children should be taught to obey? And listen, that's a direct result of throwing out God's absolutes. In a world where there is no God, that's a very legitimate question. There's nothing to tie up our ship to. Well, the answer to that question, though, is actually very simple, and it's humbling because we aren't given all of the whys. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's not because they're more worthy or perfect or because you see all the reasons. I find it interesting he doesn't say, children, obey your parents because they know better. Now, generally, that's the case. They do have more wisdom than you, but that's not the reason given. Do you notice that? No, there's a higher reason. Because the God that made the universe out of nothing, that knows everything that can possibly be known, even the things that might have been, He determined before you were ever born exactly what set of parents you would be given, and He makes no mistake. So at the outset, we have to establish to a child, if you have a problem with this command, you're essentially spitting in the face of God Himself and saying that you know better, which is a dangerous position to take. Notice the further description. For this is right. Says who? Says God. Like J. Vernon McGee used to say, if you don't like the way this universe operates, go create your own. And until you can do that, you better submit to this one. God says it's right for children to obey parents, which makes anything else wrong. Young people, listen, one of the major guardrails in your life. By the way, is a guardrail bad? I remember years ago going to the Grand Canyon. I'm not a huge fan of heights when there's a possibility of falling off of that lofty summit. And uh, one of the things they had there was a guardrail. Now I wonder, is that guardrail a friend or an enemy? Well, what is it, guys? Is that guardrail good? Uh, who's Who's it an enemy to? The one who has to push the boundaries. It's only an enemy to the guy who's going to end up at the bottom of the canyon eventually. It's a sad thing. Some of you have seen recently, I forgot the name of the sport, but these young people armed with their selfies jump across sky-rise buildings in places like Beijing and other major cities, and they hang off skyscrapers. Uh, One of those was widely published recently. A guy sets up the camera, he goes over and he does pull-ups off the edge of a skyscraper and then he vanishes because he fell. People found his camera and figured out what happened. (laughs) You say, well, what a dumb use of life. You're right, but if you're a young person who thinks you know better than your parents, you're no different. You're hanging off a skyscraper begging gravity to tear you down. And listen, that's one of the major guardrails in your life to obey parents, and you may not be given any other information besides that. There's decisions you will come to, 
The only why that you're going to know in that particular situation is that God says obey parents and that it's right. What are you going to do? All right, what exactly is obedience, though? Now, that seems like a ridiculous question at first, but, but hear me out. Now, somebody might answer, well, it's doing what I'm told. Well, yes, it includes that, but I'm going to contend that it's possible to actually do what you're told and still fall short of biblical obedience. Let's just look at the word obey for a minute. The word obey just means to listen or to hearken. In fact, the, the picture of the word, uh, somebody in Israel knocks on the door, the porter runs out, puts his ear to the door, and listens for the message coming from the person on the other side. Uh, that's actually what the word obey refers to, to listen or, or to hearken. Uh, that Greek word is used 21 times in the New Testament, but here's the first usage. Matthew 8, 27. But the men marveled, saying, this is after the Lord calmed the sea, the men marveled, saying, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, they were astounded that the created elements that were so destructive towards them were entirely subject to his command instantaneously. It's interesting, when the Lord said, peace be still, it didn't even take ten minutes for the waves to calm down. They just went, Phew. And instantly, there was a great calm. Now, several weeks ago, I posed some questions to the young people. I think it was on a Wednesday. And here's one of the questions I posed. Is obedience the same thing as agreement? Are they the same thing? Let me uh, paint a picture to illustrate what I'm talking about. Here's little Dexter. He's told to do something by a parent. His response is, why? His parents spend the next 15 minutes having a philosophical discussion, beginning with the foundation of the world and moving forward, uh, followed by eventually the promise of a donut if he'll do what he's told. Well, Dexter eventually goes and does what they say. Now, they believe, and they sit down satisfied, hey, look at that, we're teaching our child to obey. Uh, no, they have not taught him to obey. What they've just done is actively teach him that he's going to get an explanation every time he's given a command and that he doesn't have to obey unless he gets one. By the way, try that one in the military sometime. Imagine the commanding officer says, go over there, and you go, why? In the old days, you'd be eating knuckles. I don't know if that's how it works today. But the point was that didn't work in the military because they understand that obedience doesn't ask why. <laughs> now, basically what Dexter is getting, he's not being taught obedience, he's taught agreement. In other words, they think they have to get the child to understand everything behind the command before he does it. That is agreement, that is not obedience. And by the way, that's going to transfer eventually right into his relationship with the Lord where he won't obey unless he's told why, and it will destroy him. We are often given commands in Scripture, and that's it. Sometimes the only thing between you and ruin is the raw command. And look at the history of New Evangelicalism if you want proof of that. 
to not be yoked together with fake teachers and false gospels. And they're not told all the reasons why. How do we get from Harold Ockengay to the shack? Well, that's how. Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. They never knew how far the monster would go, but now they can't control it. You see, in obedience to the Bible command to separate from error back then would have saved them from it. But they couldn't see why. Brought down a whole movement with it. Uh, young children should be taught it's okay to ask why with a proper attitude after they have obeyed. You see, we want to teach them the why, but it can never be a substitution for obeying. That's very true, especially with teenagers. They ought to be taught why. They ought to be taught the heart behind standards. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, so many have thrown out biblical guidelines. Because a couple generations ago, good guidelines were formed based on the Scriptures, and they understood why. The next generation picked them up just because that's what we've always done. And then the next generation threw them out because they frankly weren't convinced biblically that they were necessary. Children ought to be taught why, but not, not as a replacement for obeying. I remember one of our children, I won't say which, but when they were younger, had a penchant for asking why, and so my wife and I prayed and deliberated, and I ended up giving her a piece of paper, and it was entitled, Mommy's Special List of Bizarre Yet Loving Commands. And uh, what that was, was every time this child asked why when they were told to do something, they were to be given an item off that list. Something like, sit down, take off your socks, turn them inside out, and put them back on. Go out to the garage, count the light bulbs, close your eyes and count to nine, and then come back inside. And the whole point of that exercise was to teach them, obey, obey, because you're not always going to understand why. Young people, listen to me. I'm not talking about a blind obedience that, that, that ignores what God said. I don't mean that. But your parents are going to be given more insight than you. They have a platform that's not given to you. All right, what, what three things does Bible obedience include? And by the way, this mirrors what our obedience to God is supposed to look like. I mean, parents, how do you obey the Lord? Do you question His wisdom at every turn? Do you obey begrudgingly and half-heartedly and delayed after you've finished what you want to do? What does Bible obedience include? By the way, this was one of the questions I posed to the young people also. What three things are included in obedience? There's a time element. There's an attitude element. And there's an effort element. All right, how about the time element? When should obedience be carried out? I realize some things you tell them do next week or... In our own walk with God, we don't know. I'm not talking about that. But as a general rule, when should obedience be carried out? Right now. Now, the Lord's commands to us are in the present tense. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent. Now is the time to confess sin. Now is the time to reconcile with others if possible. Now is the time to get serious about serving and walking with God because you may not have tomorrow. 
I mean, I think of Abraham going to Mount Moriah. You remember the story, Genesis 22. Here's this boy he'd prayed for and he'd waited for. And now the Lord says, take him up to that mountain and offer him for a burnt offering. By the way, the burnt offering depicted a total devotion to God. Now, nobody today is going to be told that. And God wasn't going to let that boy die. See, Abraham had the promise that that boy was going to live. He figured that God was going to raise him from the dead. But the interesting thing is what Abraham did with the command. What would you do? Genesis 22.3, And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass or his donkey, and went into the place which God had told him. He got up immediately, and he did it. How about an attitude element? Philippians 2.14, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, without complaining, grumbling, huffing, griping, dragging feet, or arguing. How about effort? Colossians 3.23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and not unto men. So in summary, Bible obedience, here's what it includes. Besides not asking why before obeying, it includes doing what you're told immediately with a proper attitude and exactly how you were told to do it. That is biblical obedience. Now let's go back to Dexter again. Let's say on three successive days, Dexter is told to clean up his room every day before dinner for three days. Day number one, Dexter's told, now go clean up your room. Day number one, he plays Legos for ten more minutes. Then he goes with a very good attitude and does his very best to clean the room. Okay, day number two. Mom says, go clean your room. He goes immediately. But the whole way down the hall, he's doing one of those. But then he does his best to clean the room. All right, the next day he goes immediately. He has a good attitude. But he does a half-hearted effort and just throws everything under the bed. All right, parents, which day did Dexter obey? None of them. None of them. If we as parents let that pass consistently for obedience, we're going to lay the seeds for their destruction and their walk with God in the future. Something I heard very early in my Christian life that stuck with me, delayed obedience is disobedience. All right, some legitimate questions, though. How about a child says, what, am I, what about when I'm asked to do something sinful? Now, we, we covered this talking about wives a couple of weeks ago. I'm not going to go in depth. I just want to mention the principles quickly, and we'll move on. Has any child in the world ever been told to do something that contradicts what God said? Well, the answer to that is yes. Are they to just ignore God's principles? Uh, the answer to that is No. So here's some principles we talked about, and again, these apply to authority pretty much at any level. 
Acts 4 and 5, the apostles are told in both of those chapters, two different times, stop preaching the gospel. In one instance, they say we ought to obey God rather than men. In the other one, they say, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto men more than unto God, judge ye, or we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So in both cases, they decline what they're told and obey God, and they suffer the consequences for it. So let's just remind ourselves of those principles quickly. Uh, Number one, if this happens, it has to be a clear contradiction between what God has plainly said and what a man has said. In other words, this can't be merely some feeling or peace or voice in the night. This isn't just an area of liberty. Dad says, I want you wearing uh, slacks. And the boy says, show me a verse in the Bible that says I have to wear slacks. I'd show him Ephesians 6.1. That's an area of liberty. Dad, parents can make those judgment calls. I've mentioned it before. Can you imagine? I've run into adults that do this. Show me a chapter and verse where the Bible says that because they haven't yet learned to apply principles. And my response to them is, if you tell your child to go to bed at 9 p.m. and he says, show me chapter and verse where the Bible says that, what are you going to say? I don't have a chapter and verse. It's based on principles in my leadership position. Ding, ding, ding. There you go. So leadership position carries with it certain prerogatives and certain uh, leadership decisions. So a child who says, well, I don't have to go to bed at 10 because the Bible doesn't say it, he's disobeying, he's rebelling. Okay, The the Bible doesn't say you, you shouldn't go to bed at 10 and Dad says you should. That's not a contradiction. So it has to be an area for, for Acts 4 and 5 to even apply. It has to be a clear contradiction of a plain statement of Scripture. I prayed and felt a peace. That doesn't cut it. I've heard that before, by the way, before someone walks off a cliff. More than once. A two, <clears throat> attitude is paramount. There's still a submissive and respectful demeanor, not a rebellious stiff neck. In other words, there's still a willingness to obey in every single possible area. The attitude is not, well, I can't obey there. Matter of fact, I'm not going to listen to words you say. That's rebellion. That's not obeying God rather than men. The right attitude says, for the Lord's sake, I, in a respectful attitude, I can't obey in that area, but I will obey you every possible way I can. I just can't do that. Attitude makes all the difference. Thirdly, if you cannot righteously obey, then you must respectfully refuse and face the consequences. And we could give multiple examples of that, but we have to move on. How about another legitimate question? This one gets asked a lot. Part of it's because we have an age, we're in an age where everybody wants to walk the fence, but it is a legitimate question. It's not always a bad one to ask, is what I'm saying. Who exactly are the children? Uh, At what age does this become non-binding? Is there a biblical age where a young person can now tell their parents effectively, I'm an adult, I don't have to do a thing that you say, and it's okay to say that? Uh, You know, in this country, age 18 renders you able to go to war, to vote, to be a legal adult, to get sued. I mean, you name it. You're now a legal adult. What does that mean for a Christian young person? I'll say at the outset, it's a complicated question, but I want to give some guiding principles on it. First of all, an appeal to you that are teenagers or that you're heading into that phase of life, by the way, parents, don't expect or don't accept the worldly garbage that teens have to be rebellious. That's not true. 
Who cares how normal it is in a fallen world? <laughs> but you young people that are here, I want you to think of the reality of young adulthood. Some of you will be there soon. At no other time in your life will you have the combination of brand new freedom and independence coupled with an almost total lack of real-world life experience. In other words, they're wonderful days, young adulthood, but they're also very dangerous days. At no time in your life is there more potential to destroy yourself than when you're first flying the proverbial nest. That's often when marriage and career decisions are made and life-altering sins become normal for you. Why do you think that used car lots, marine recruiters, and multi-level marketers love to speak with an 18-year-old person who's eager to show their independence? Because they're easy pickings, that's why. All you have to do is appeal to their desire to be their own adults and reel them in. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm only saying that to give you due caution that you don't know as much as you think in that phase of life. This world will puff you up to the size of Colossus and then run you over and suck you dry when it's done with you. It will feed your ego to the point of total destruction. Secondly, let's talk about the word children. Uh, we don't have time to go into detail on it, but I'll say this. There's many Greek words in the New Testament used to refer to children or young people. And uh, really, most of them have different shades of meaning. If you want, you can pick up a Strong's Concordance and you can go through them. There's several. Uh, some of them refer to the dignity and character of the relationship itself. Uh, some words for children refer to the actual age of the child. You know on that word it is a little child, an infant, a very young child. Uh, but this word that's used here is the word technon, which stresses the fact of birth. Uh, it's used in the New Testament of children of God, children of light, children of obedience, children of promise, children of wrath, and children of the devil. Uh, the emphasis is not on age. It's on the fact of sonship. So in other words, that particular word used by the Holy Spirit here in Ephesians 6.1 isn't saying people under a certain age obey your parents and then forget it. But he's saying those of you that have parents at all obey them simply because they are your God-given authority. Now that doesn't solve every difficulty. Is there a Bible age of adulthood? <clears throat> I mean, is there a specific age in Scripture? And you say, son, you crossed that line. Uh, forget listening to me. Well, the short answer to that is no. But if I had to pick one, I could at least stand on some solid ground by saying it would be age 20 and not age 18. Uh, it was in the Old Testament that from 20 years old and upward, they were counted as able to go to war. Below age 20, they were not. It's interesting to note when God gives the judgment that the Jews would wander in the wilderness for 40 years until their carcasses fell in the wilderness, uh, where He was assigning moral accountability, in Numbers 32.11, He says, Surely 
None of the men that came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swear unto Abraham. So there the Lord draws a line at age 20 and says, everyone from 20 and up, if you rebelled, you're dying in the wilderness. But everyone 20 and under, uh, not you. That's at least some evidence that 20 might be a better age for that than 18, possibly. In fact, uh, Jews could not enter the priesthood until they were 30 years of age. They couldn't be in spiritual oversight until they had some actual life experience. Okay, so if somebody wants to insist on a specific age, I think 20, scripturally, is more accurate than 18. I think all of us would agree a whole lot of maturing happens in those two years. By the way, I'm not saying lock them in a closet till they're 20. I don't mean that. I'm saying if somebody wants to insist on a specific age, there's better ground for 20 than 18. But I would suggest the age varies with the individual. As a general rule, those in authority over them are going to recognize when the time is right. By the way, I'm not talking about the so-called patriarchy movement. That's creepy. A daughter has to be at home till she's 60, rubbing daddy's feet. I'm sorry, that's messed up too. I don't have time to get off on that. Maybe another time. I'm not talking about that. But basically, there's a remaining under parental authority until marriage or until God clearly leads them elsewhere, whether to ministry or marriage. That's when they leave and cleave. They form their own family unit that began back in Genesis. I can tell you this as a pastor, in case you're wondering, unless there's a very strange extenuating circumstance... I will not marry any young couple that does not have the blessing of both sets of parents. Because I expect God to work through those channels not opposed to them. And believe me, I've had people very upset with me over that. And have been accused of some very choice things because of that stand. And I say tough. I believe it's based on scriptural guidelines. Now think of some biblical examples for a minute. How about Isaac? Amazing type of Christ. Genesis 22, he goes up Mount Moriah with his dad. Now he'd gone through many sacrifices. Uh, you know, Dad, I, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, I see wood. See the torch. Seems like something's missing. Oh, the sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, where would that be? My son, God will provide a sacrifice. And Abraham binds him to the altar. By the way, I'm not going to get into all the reasons why. There's good evidence. Isaac, he wasn't some eight-year-old kid. He was well into early adulthood when that happened. There's good reason for saying that. I'm not going to get into it right now. How about later on? Here's Isaac, Genesis 24. He's 40 years old, waiting to be married, and he's listening to his father's counsel in the matter. No, that doesn't mean somebody can't be married till 40. That's not what I'm saying. But the idea is he wanted parental input even at that age. How about Jacob, stubborn as he was? Genesis 28, obviously, he's well into manhood physically. He's told to find a wife, where to find a wife. In verse 7, it says, Jacob obeyed his father and his mother and was gone into Padan Aram. How about the greatest example of all? Uh, have you ever thought, especially young people, 
on the so-called silent years of Christ. You know, from the time that he's roughly two years of age until his public ministry begins at age 30, 28 years of his life go by, and we're only given one snapshot that speaks very loudly. In other words, the silent years of Christ are not so silent. Turn there with me if you would. Let me show you a couple of things. Luke chapter 2. You can keep your finger in Ephesians if you want. Luke chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'll paint the picture. I think most of you know it. The Lord had gone up with his parents to Jerusalem. He's 12 years old. This would have been around the time of his bar mitzvah, becoming a son of the covenant. I'll say more of that in a minute. And so they go up in a large family group to Jerusalem. They celebrate the Passover. Now they're heading home. Okay, there's dozens and dozens of relatives, cousins, aunts, uncles, you name it. And they're traveling home. They get a day away from Jerusalem. His mother has a panic moment and realizes her 12-year-old son is not there. I think uh, most of us know what that one feels like. It's horrible. Time slows down. Well, now they got to turn around and go an entire day back. And uh, by the time they find Jesus, their son, their Mary's son by uh, physical birth, of course, Joseph's, he was his uh, stepfather, essentially. Um, it came to pass, verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking questions. Now, it's interesting at this point in his life, it, notice it doesn't say he's teaching them, although he would have had plenty to say. You see, even the Son of God knew his place by age. It's interesting, at age 12, he's hearing, he's listening to them, and he's asking questions, and you can bet it was respectful. It wasn't until he was 30 years of age that he came back teaching. But his mother comes to him. Verse 48, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. She's saying, what are you thinking? <clears throat> now he answers, verse 49, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not, or knew ye not, that I must be about my father's Business. So, on one hand, he speaks about his being consumed with the will of his father. You can bet he always was. But, notice what it says in verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth. What's the next phrase? And was subject unto them. Now, when you go through the chapter break, 18 years go by before we're given another snapshot of his life. Well, what was going on in those so-called silent years of Christ? 
He was consumed with doing the will of his father, but do you notice that did not contradict with subjecting himself to earthly parents? Now, think for a minute about the excuses he could have leveled. Jesus there could have said, but I'm a man now. Well, a Jewish bar mitzvah was, was quite a deal. A boy was recognized as a son of the commandments. In many cases, it was then that they began to take a part in running family finances or taking over some of the family businesses. It was at their bar mitzvah that they were allowed to publicly read the scriptures and religious meetings. It was at their bar mitzvah that they were, um, they were allowed to be a legal witness in, in an actual trial in a courtroom and to be counted as an adult. So there would have been some legitimacy to him saying, I'm a man now because he just had a ceremony recognizing that. Doesn't change what happened. Now how about if he said, but I know more than my parents do. Well, uh, for once that was true. Look what it says in verse 50. And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. He did know more than his earthly parents. He was God in the flesh. What about if he said, but I'm closer to God than my parents? Well, that was true too. Now, do you think Mary and Joseph ever were out of fellowship with God? Sure they were. Was Jesus? No. But what saith the Scriptures? Loudly of those silent years of Christ. He came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. You see, even God knows what it's like to be subject to fallible parents. And He was subject to them not because they were closer to God or because they knew more, but because God had laid down the law and He came to perfectly fulfill the will of His Father. All right, we are almost done, but notice verse 2. The second major verb commanded here. First is obey, then comes honor. Honor thy father and mother. Now he's quoting from the Ten Commandments back in the Law of Moses. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, if you notice the order of commands, it says a lot. The Ten Commandments are really broken up into groups of four and six. The first table, or what's thought to be the first table, all four of those commands were how I am to respond to God. The second table, the, the final six, were how I am to relate to mankind. But on that second table... The first command that would have appeared before murder, adultery, and stealing was honor thy father and mother. What else? Why else is it important? Well, because he's showing that this has been God's mindset on this from the beginning. This isn't merely a musty old rule to be abandoned or a new rule to be embraced just for the time being. It's a reflection of the character of God ever since the first child was born outside of Eden. Now, what does it mean to honor? Well, it means just to fix a very high value on something, to esteem or to prize. And by the way, this has no age restriction. You know, Galatians 
talking about sowing and reaping, right? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. How do, you par how do you parents treat your parents? Do your kids see you honoring them? Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Well, to honor means to value, to hold in high esteem. I remember, uh, you know, for years contracting in Alaska, I drove a, one of those extended white Dodge cargo vans. We called it the White Stallion. It was basically one-wheel drive, which in winters up there, I had some quality flying experiences going off the road in that. I'll spare you the details. Uh, but the day came to sell that. I listed it on Craigslist. No, I'm not endorsing Craigslist, but I sold it on Craigslist. And this guy meets me in Anchorage, and it really struck me. Here's a guy that's probably late 30s. As far as I know, he's married, and he owned his own company. He came to look at that van with his dad. And it wasn't some weird, I can't, I can't make decisions without daddy. It wasn't, it wasn't that, but... He said, yeah, I brought my dad with me. He said, I want to spend time with him. And he said, I want his input. I want to see what he thinks about this decision, if this is a good fit and a good decision. And I thought, wow, do you not see that very often? Incredible. I think of another friend of mine. He's been on the mission field in China for years and years and years, and he finally came back home. And many would look at that and say, oh, you left the field. You're unfaithful. You know what his reasoning was? His parents are declining in age. They don't know the Lord. And he said, I believe for me to honor my parents, I need to be here ministering right where they are, doing my best to help them spiritually and take care of them. And that takes precedence over China. I highly respect him for that. I think his reasoning is right. All right, but what does he mean when he says it's the first commandment with promise? What, what does that mean? Well, in the list of the Ten Commands, you find this list of commands, prohibitions. But until you get to number five, there's a blessing attached to it. It's not just do this, don't do this. It's do this and something good will come out of it. And now Paul's taking the Old Testament promise of blessing and attaching to the New Testament church as something still in effect. So, uh, you young people, not only are you told to obey because God says so, but it's actually beneficial to you. How many of you want God's blessing? Hmm? Anybody here want God's blessing? Hope so. Look what it says. Honor thy father and mother, verse 2, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, obviously, that's not a 100% universal truth. There are exceptions all of us have seen, beginning with Abel. But it's giving a general principle. Here's what it is. Those that honor their parents can expect both quality and quantity of life. <laughs> that it may go well. That's just good in general with you. Subjecting yourself to parents and honoring them when you're out of the home 
will lend itself to things going well. Now, that's the exact opposite of the way of transgressors is hard. How about this one, that thou mayest live long on the earth? So as a general rule, God promises to those that honor their parents quality and quantity of life. What an astounding thing. All right, we have to wrap this up. There is no reconciling the world's philosophy of parenting or of being a child with God's philosophy. You cannot mix modern pop psychology with the Bible any more than you can mix God with Satan. Who knows best? I was reading just this past week that a BBC over across the pond is teaching British school children these days that there's over a hundred legitimate genders. Man, call me ignorant. I could have sworn there's two. Basic things aren't so basic anymore. And God's thrown out. Are you parents that are here? Are you modeling and then consistently teaching actual biblical obedience? Or a sloppy counterfeit? I don't mean there's no grace involved or anything like that. But if we remember in our minds, the obedience I teach them is going to eventually become their obedience to God. How do we want them to obey God? Are you children that are here? Are you hanging off a cliff? If you think you know better than your parents, you are. I hope everybody here can say that they know their sins are forgiven. Just in case, I always pose that question. This passage isn't posing a way of salvation. Children do this and you'll be right with God. No, 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 no. No, we can't put shingles on where there's no foundation. You young people, before you can really truly learn obedience, you can learn obedience some, parents ought to teach you, but before you can really obey from the heart, you know what has to happen? You need to believe in Christ for yourself. You need to take His free gift of salvation, not because mom and dad go to church, but because you're a sinner and needs a Savior. And that goes for every one of us here. If anybody needs to discuss that after, I'd be thrilled to pieces to talk with you. And trust me, we won't be in a hurry. There's no better thing to talk about than God's gift of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us as, first of all, as parents here. Lord, we are pulled every which way. We're buffeted by our own faults and failures and inconsistencies. And sometimes we look at our life and all we see is black. But I pray You'd help us not to lay down in defeat, but to get up from where we are and fear You and trust You and go forward from here. I pray for the young people that are here. I pray You'd preserve them from rebellion that will ruin them. Preserve them from choosing to listen to the hiss of the serpent rather than the voice of God. I pray for those here that 
are not in Christ. That they would humble themselves, turn from sin and come to Jesus while there's still time. Thank you that you're willing to save, and I thank you for giving us true, true family counsel. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll close with one verse. Song number 437, before we're dismissed. I like this song super well, so those of you that do, please help.